0: Verses here in this chapter that you will recognize from the New Testament, of course, nine um, two. Uh, the companion text is Matthew four, uh, verses uh, thirteen uh, through sixteen, and then nine seven. The companion text is Luke 31 to thirty three, which is actually an angel uh, speaking and quoting uh, loosely from. Isaiah's prophecy about uh, this child that would be born to Mary. But all this good news is couched in uh, judgment upon the nation, isn't it? And In verses 18 through 21 especially we see uh, the nature of wickedness and it is a picture of people devouring one another. Uh, Ephraim devouring Manasseh. Manasseh uh, devouring Ephraim. And because of these sins, we have this phrase uh, tripled uh, three times here in this chapter. Verse 12, uh, first of all, the last part of the verse he says in spite of this his anger does not turn back and his hand is still stretched out yet the people do not turn back to him who struck him so unrepentance brings continued judgment God will not turn his hand back again in 17 last uh, phrase sentence if you will of 17 in spite of all this his anger does not turn back And his hand is still stretched out. For wickedness burns like a fire. And then finally in 21 the chapter will end uh, with the same spirit I guess that the uh, last chapter ended in. Behold uh, darkness and gloom um, at the the end of chapter 8. But... Sandwiched in between that is glory. Follow along as I read 9.1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall make great their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their taskmaster, as at the battle of of Midian. Good thing to keep in mind as we've gone through that battle in the book of Judges with Dan, that that is a type of our salvation. A wonderful deliverance uh, from oppression. Sin is a taskmaster. 9 5 For every boot of the booted warrior in the rumbling of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning. Fuel for the fire. David Guzik says this pictures for us the finality. The battle is over. The warriors are burning their clothes. There's nothing else you can do with the bloody uh, garments. The battle is over. Verse 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish it. Accomplish this. And us poor Gentiles can testify to the truth of that kingdom lasting forever and ever. It has come down to us today. But now back to Jacob. The Lord sends a message against Jacob and it falls on Israel. And all the people know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria saying in lofty pride, And in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with cut stones. The sycamores have been cut in pieces, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, (coughs) Yahweh exalts against them adversaries from reason and incites their enemies. The Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west... And they devour Israel with gaping jaws. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn back, and his hand is still stretched out. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek Yahweh of hosts. So Yahweh cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush, in a single day. The head is the elder and the highly respected man. And the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tale. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. Therefore, the Lord is not glad in their choice men, nor does he have compassion on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn back and his hand is still stretched out. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame. and They roll upward in a column of smoke. By the fury of Yahweh of hosts, the land is burned up and the people are like fuel for the fire. No man spares his brother. They slice off what is on the right hand, but still are hungry, and they eat what is on the left hand, but they are not satisfied. Each of them eats the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn back, and his hand is still stretched out.
1: Now before John comes to open the word of God, take the hymns of grace, 403. Hymns of grace, 403. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Let's stand together as we sing. Blessed assurance,
2: Signed when you became pastor here, but they gave me extra money if I promised never to leave singing. So uh, you may want to work that in there somewhere or another. Work for me anyway. We want to look this morning, afternoon, sorry, at uh, Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, we're going to be looking uh, at verses 1 through 8. And If you want to know the date of Christ's coming, you'll have to talk with me afterwards. I'm selling a book that uh, we'll see how that works out for me. I have heard the phrase, I don't know if you've heard it before, but describing a person who seems a little bit out there, not feet on the ground kind of a thing. They are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Uh, I think I understand the gist of what the thought was, but it is becoming more and more a uh, confirmed matter in my mind that that's exactly the opposite of what needs to be said because I just don't think we're heavenly-minded enough. Do do you think enough of what is coming? Do you think uh, enough of the joys that will be ours so that when the sorrows that are inevitable in this life come our way, we still say, yes, but the best is yet to come. And that's, that's what I want to look at today because we, we need some encouragement. Uh, days sometimes seem rather dark, and we need that, that light set before us to let us know that this is all part of God's good plan for his glory and for our good. And I think uh, this uh, opening of the 21st chapter of Revelation kind of gives us at least a hint of what is yet to come for us, Uh, what comes for us on the other side of the grave, or uh, preferably the early return of our Lord. So let us begin by simply reading through the The passage that I've set before us, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8, and then see if we can hear God's word applied to our hearts. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly... And unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. May we bow in prayer. Our Father, we do need encouragement to continue to be those obedient children you have called us to be. Let us hear this afternoon. Those words that can encourage us to tell us that it is worth whatever sacrifices are necessary to be that holy people in a very unholy world. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you are old enough, you perhaps remember the presidential season, I believe it was early 1990s when our uh, president running for election or re-election, I don't remember that well, but he promised something of on the order of a new world order. I don't know if you remember that, but I don't know. In a way, I guess it sounded kind of exciting. But the truth is that no matter how noble the leader may be, how great his thoughts and plans may turn out to be, the truth is they can't give us anything new. All we do is recycle what's come before, kind of Solomon's words about there's nothing new under the sun. Well, he was right. Uh, We are sitting here 3,000 years after Solomon wrote those words and discovered that what he said is exactly true. Leaders may promise a new world order, but they cannot deliver on it because all they can do is put Band-Aids on the problems. They cannot actually deal with the root of the issues in the world that cause such terrible things to happen, the solution of that problem begins at a place that we usually don't like to think of. We just read about it. We just heard Isaiah speak to us about the judgment that God delivers upon the wicked. That's where that new world starts. It is with that judgment that that comes now, Judgment is not God's last word for mankind. He has another word, and it is that word about grace, but the word about judgment is a necessary one if we are to live in that kingdom of righteousness that God has promised, if we are to be able to enjoy that world to come in which the Prince of Peace rules. Judgment is necessary because sin must be gone. It must be removed, and that is exactly what judgment does. Scripture teaches that the world that God created is good. And it will be good again because the root of the problem will be dealt with. Sin will be removed entirely. That is that is something to look forward to. Scripture teaches us that the one who created a good world will Bring about a new heaven and a new earth that will be totally devoid of anything that is evil. That is the picture that I believe is uh, John is trying to convey with those words there at the end of the first verse. And there is no longer any sea. Now I have a brother-in-law who would be disappointed if that were literally true because being in the Navy, owning a sailboat, Sailing on the seas sounds great to him. Uh, Didn't sound like much to me, but for him it is important. John is not trying to be literal here. He's not trying to say that there will be no seas. Rather, it is an image that is used in Scripture in several places, that of the constant roiling of the waves that reminds us of that restlessness of mankind. It is it is that that evil that keeps getting dredged up as the the waves roll on year after year, decade after def, def, decade. There is that ceaseless restlessness in which no man is ever satisfied. There is always whatever good comes their way, they still look and say, but it's not enough. The next thing is what will bring me great joy. Uh, you'll. You'll remember from the earlier chapters of this book of Revelation, the sea is the place where the beast comes up to be able to to bring havoc upon the world. It is the source of evil, therefore, in the terms of biblical imagery. But in heaven, there's no place for it. There's no sea there anymore. There's no turmoil anymore. There is only that grace of God that constantly is extended towards his people so that they never have to endure that restless heart anymore. There is a sense of satisfaction that is ours because God is with us. In this new world, there is perfect fellowship, perfect fellowship with men so that there is no envy, no strife, no divisions. That'd be a good start even for the church to start enjoying, to be able to have a place where there is no strife and no division. The New Jerusalem is a symbol of the people of God as a community together. God may have the universe to be able to set our homes in wherever he wishes, but he's not going to set one of us here and then a couple of light years away another one of us. We are going to live together. Can you imagine living with the people of God And knowing that no sin will ever enter into our thoughts, into our words, into our deeds, being able to live like that forever, well, that is what is promised to us. Because Jerusalem, as scripture tells us, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, that Jerusalem above is the mother of all the saints. She is our mother. She is the place we belong. She is our family. And we are going to be gathered together as one. And then, of course, the author of Hebrews calls it the church of the firstborn. Uh, firstborn because, well, we are united to Christ who is the firstborn of all creation. He is our Lord and in him we find that which joins us together. The consummation of hope for peace with men is supremely a social one. It is it is life in a redeemed community. Uh, I confess, when we retired, we moved to a place where our nearest neighbor that we see at any uh, given regularity is probably about a quarter of a mile down the road. Uh, we have farm fields uh, around us. That's that's uh, all we see when we look out our, our windows for the most part. And, and it is pleasant moving from a, a, a street that is constantly busy to one where if you see more than two, three cars an hour, you feel like we need to move again because we're too close. It is, it is I guess, a, a desire to kind of pull back a little bit. But what we can look forward to is the people of God is a place where we will enjoy every moment of every day. Not just because we are with our Lord, but because we are with his people. That is a joy, again, that awaits us. But the fellowship that we will enjoy is not just with men, it is with God. Because the single most important aspect of life in the New Jerusalem is relationship with God himself. That that is something truly to look forward to. His dwelling place, as John says here, is with men. The word became flesh. And do you remember how John puts it in that first chapter of his gospel? He came and he tabernacled among us. Well, now the tabernacle among us is well. It, it's more, it's more real to us because we can see it with our eyes. We we can reach out and touch him with our hands. We can hear him speak to us. That is that is the joy that will be ours. We will once again be able to hear and see him and and imagine with our lord tabernacled among us in the cool of the evening to enjoy whatever work it is that god gives us to do among us yes in the cool of the evening. likely as far as i understand it still be working but it will be a work without the sweat the toil the labor that is unproductive unsatisfying We will wake up each morning to look forward to what our God has planned for us. And then in the evening, we will take those long walks with him where he can speak with us. That that is something that we can consider and truly, truly desire to happen sooner rather than later. We will be his people. He will be our God so that days of doubt, days of darkness will forever be a thing of the past. We will never, ever have to deal with anything that causes us to to doubt his word and his will for us in life. In this world, we will find an unending peace. Now, just just think for a moment of what you would what would you feel like if tomorrow morning you opened up your newspaper or brought it up on the computer screen, whatever way you do it, and you saw the headline that says the war between Ukraine and Russia has been settled peacefully. Wouldn't that be great? Or, or just below the fold, perhaps. And by the way, the Islamic governments of the world have banded together to say their countries are open to Christian churches being formed in the places where those Christians live so that they can worship together in peace. Wouldn't that be something? How about something along the lines of the politicians? We we look on page 3 and lo and behold, there's a huge article about politicians one after the other coming forward and playing the role of Zacchaeus. I've heard God speak and I'm telling you, if I've cheated anyone, I will give them back four times what I took from them and I'm giving away half of all that I own. We might actually change our mind about some of the politicians we're, we're familiar with. We might actually say to ourselves, Man, this, this is the kind of new world that I have been looking forward to. That world, of course, is not going to come before our Lord returns, but it will come afterwards. That will be our, our world that we live in. There will be no more sorrow. We won't need a priest to go and offer his special prayers for us, we won't we we won't need the elders and call them for anointing us when we are sick. But we won't need that kind of stuff because guess who our comforter will be? It will be God Himself, there at our side to give us whatever is needed in order to make sure that day is exactly what He wanted for us and what we wanted for ourselves and. Even better. He will not just deal with the symptoms. He won't just wipe away our tears. He is going to te- uh, deal with the root of the problem. And what is that root of the problem? It is the curse that came because of Adam's sin on the world. No more curse. There is only the evidence of God's blessing on the world so that it will be just as it was at the end of the creation story. And God looked at all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's what we will see. Morning by morning, as you arise to look out from your windows, if we need windows, and you look and you see the world about us and you say, this, this is what I call very good also. And we will give praise to our God for so taking care of us. This promise brings hope for today because, well, the process has already begun. I know it's hard to believe. Uh, Quit reading the newspaper and it'll be easier to believe. But I I, I know it's hard to believe. But the truth is, he is going not just to make things new someday, but did you see what he said there in the fifth verse? Uh, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He's already doing it. God is already working through the events of the world to bring about that perfect world that he intends for his people there in the end. The salvation of the one who sits on the throne is not limited to our souls that he saves. Because the one who sits on the throne in heaven is the one who controls the atoms and everything else in between that and the stars that exist in the heavens. All will be under his perfect control as it is now, save for this, without the curse, without sin, it will always only be good and glorious, not only to him but to us. There will literally be in that day no place for sin to take root because our hearts will be cleansed, we will be purified. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's one of the greatest of the blessings. Just think, never to have a thought cross your mind that is in any way contrary to God's perfect and good will for you. I, I, I can't hardly even imagine that. Talk about miracles. That would be a miracle indeed. It is done. It is done, he says in the sixth verse. Talking about this new world, it is not will be, it is done. Now, how can God say that? Well, it is because, let us remember, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. You see, there there are no, for, for him, there are no problems with time. He is eternal. He stands outside of time himself. Just as the universe cannot contain him, as Solomon speaks of at the, the opening of the temple, it's that time has no meaning to him. Well, he understands it, but he's not a part of it. And thus, when the God who can see a thousand years ago as well as he can see today and a thousand years from now, when that God says it is done, it just simply means I've already established it. You can't see it yet except by faith. You can't see it yet. But I know it is going to come because he knows it, not looking down through the corridors of time to see what's coming, but he knows it because he controls what is going on. He is the sovereign Lord, not just over Christians, not just over the church, but over everything that happens. And thus, when he tells you that this is what the world will be like, that's exactly what the world is going to be like in that world there will be the victorious saints. He said to me, it's done. I'm thou alpha and the omega. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water. Now, you remember the parable about uh, the, the, the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man simply wants a drop of water to cool his tongue. Even if it's only for an instant to be able to enjoy that. God says, "A touch on the tongue isn't even close. A cup, a jug of living water? No, it's a spring that constantly flows. Whatever it is that fills our heart so that we are satisfied with God and the, the life that he has given to us, he said it's yours and you can come back as many times as you want. It's like one of those places that you go uh, pay your money and you can eat all that you, uh, you pay a price and you can eat all you want. Well, God says that's what it's like, except that he says it's at no cost. He says I've already taken care of it. Don't worry, the bill has been paid. That was taken care of at the cross. You come, you enjoy it. and and we will. We will do that and enjoy it. It is it is for the overcomers though. You'll notice that seventh verse, he who overcomes shall inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son to the one who overcomes. Overcomes what? Well, to the one who overcomes that sin that lies within his own heart. We talk about cleaning up Washington, D.C., the political life of the nation, or whatever it is that is disturbing you lately. We need to take care of this one first. We need to overcome. Those who overcome have fought against the attractions of the sinful world, and have found a joy in the Lord that deprivation simply can't remove from their lives. They have found a joy of fellowship with God that is so satisfying that the evils of this world, less and less are they appealing. What may have appealed to us when we were young Christians and we really struggled with as the years wear on, we go, oh, yeah, well, that, that's not quite so appealing to me anymore riches fame whatever it may be that worldly people say I've got to have this or die we we learn more and more I'm good with God that that's enough for me I have found him I have found the life that I want in him the saints in that day will in God's new creation be perfect in their love for and their obedience to Jesus Christ perfect no sin Again, I think it's one of the great miracles of Scripture that we are told that there was no sin in Jesus. I mean, how, how old were you before you sinned your first sin? And yet, never, 33 years of life, never a foul word from his mouth, never a wicked thought came to him. Never did he go out and do that which he knew was contrary to his Father's perfect will for his life. That will be our life. That will be who we are. In, in, this, in this world, there will not be one among them, not one of the saints, who rejects any part of God's law. Now, there are people who say, oh, I love God's law, just so long as it agrees with my current philosophies. I, I, I love God's law. I want to I live by those things. And yet... They run across something that's, well, okay, but that's for that day and it's not for this day. Because in our enlightened age, we, we've learned better than that. No, all of God's law. God, you tell me what to do and that's what I want. That is, that is where we are headed through faith in Christ. We know that we will be cleansed of all sin because we have those perfectly righteous hearts we will finally be that holy, fitting bride for Christ so that we can not just endure his holiness. Remember the Old Testament saints who saw angels of God or they saw some, some form that God had taken for them like Moses being hidden in the cleft of the rock? He says, you couldn't take it all in. You, you, you wouldn't live if you saw me as I am. Well, we will see him as he is. Because the Son of God remains still that human, that one with a, a human nature just as he has a divine nature. And we will, we will see him with our eyes. We will enjoy his company, his presence with us. That is, that is the kind of thing that we need to have that perfect righteousness for. And you know what the good news about that is? You are to struggle for it. Don't, don't get me wrong. You are to fight the good fight. You were to put on the armor of God and take on that sin that is in the world and in your own heart. But in the end, you do know where that overcoming righteousness comes from, right? It is from the one who looked at his disciples as his ministry was ending. And he said to them, you will have trouble in this world, but fear not, I have overcome the world. That's That's where our victory comes from. It is from being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus himself, imputed to us because of what he did for us on the cross, dying when we had no right to expect anything from him at all, anything that was good. We will be that fitting bride of Christ that we long now to be. My youngest daughter got married two years ago. This month, and uh, we are about to be introduced to the second of her children in a, uh, about a month and a half or so. Looking forward to that. Her husband's already figured out some of the things that he was not aware of that uh, can cause a little bit of, um, and I do mean a little a bit of friction. Sometimes, one of the things I thought was rather funny. He said, yeah, I've I've almost quit uh, asking her to watch movies that I just recommend. He says, because I went in there one day and I found her. She had fast-forwarded to the end of the movie because she wanted to see if she liked the ending. She says, I'm not going to watch it if it has a bad ending. Well, I invite you to go to the end of the book. That's why we're in Revelation today. Go to the end of the book. Take a look. See if it's not one of those shows that you want to watch. I know we see a lot of ugly stuff in the world today. There's just no getting around it on a global level, on a national level, and on a personal level. We just see a lot of bad things going on. But look at the end of the story. Look at how God winds up this book you will find an assurance from God, from God himself, that all things end well. Everything, he is working for the good of those who love him, who know him. So, when the bad stuff happens, hold that in mind. When a virus or a cancer sweeps through your body, remember what the end of the book is. When a blizzard or a hurricane destroys your property, Look at the end of the book and see how God works things out because a new world really does exist and is coming for us. If friends betray you, if evil turns family member against family member, and yes, even in Christian families, that that kind of thing happens. If that happens, look at the end of the book because God says, "I'm, I'm working that out. Don't worry about it. I will take care of that problem. If trials hide God's smile, all that awaits you at the end is that joy that goes on forever and ever and ever. Is it not worth giving yourself to him, letting him work out his good plan for you in life despite all the junk that happens to us? When loved ones die... When those plans that you had as a young person, yeah, they don't work out like you had hoped they would. When emptiness and darkness prevails, remember who your comforter is. We don't see him right now with our eyes, but I know he's there, and I know it because Scripture tells me it is. God himself, through his word, makes that clear. When sin makes overcoming sin... When that which is evil in your own heart makes you go, I don't think I'm ever going to get there. Well, first of all, welcome to the rest of the world of Christians for the last 2,000 years and more. When that happens, just remember again, Christ has already overcome the world. He's already done it. So that your future is absolutely certain you will be that perfectly pure of heart person who gets to see God as Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. So it is, when distress, when sorrow, when hardship overwhelm you, look, look once more at the end. Take into consideration again once more, God really does have something more glorious than you can even imagine in store for you. And all you've got to do is just wait a few more years. Just wait a few more years. Minor, not perhaps as many as some of you here, but you got what? 60, 70, 80 years? And just think, when that comes, it's all done and over with, and all you've got is God left. I don't know if there are really streets of gold. I don't know if there are really pearly gates. But you know what? I don't really care either. Because I know Jesus is there, and that has been and will be, to the day that we die, the greatest fulfillment of our dreams that we can imagine. We will be with our Lord forever and forever. Amen. You want me to pray? Okay. Our Father, we have good reason. To despair. There is sorrow in our heart that is sometimes so deep we can hardly speak about it. There are bad things that are in the process right now of depriving us of that joy that we had hoped we would find in you. And yet, despite all those things, a, a man stuck in a dark Roman prison, awaiting potentially his execution in a short period of time, could say, rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. Beaten as he had been, deprived of friendships that he had known from a childhood, devoid of the... the prestige that he had as a young man, he could say, I still find cause to rejoice. So too can we. And where our strength fails, how glad we are for the Spirit of God who dwells within us, for he can strengthen us even when we have no strength. May we be like Paul. May we find that upon the thought of heaven itself, We see why you tell us that it is in our weakness that your strength is most evident. Grant it to us that we may bring praise, honor, and glory to your name. We ask through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thank you, John, for that encouraging word. It's good to... And I don't think we do it enough. Think about heaven and what that day will be like. In closing, let's take the Trinity hymn book, turning to 598, 598 hymn that speaks of that reality. There's no night in heaven in that blessed world above. I'm going to ask if you'll play it all the way through one time, Julie, and then we will sing it together.